podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL roundtable feed. So just search EPL roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now on with the show. Boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Monday, April 3rd. Hope you all had a wonderful weekend. I did not. It was ruined by Liverpool Football Club, as is their wanton way this season. Uh, We'll jump straight into the games. We'll do the games. We'll look at the league table. We'll go to break. We'll come back and we'll discuss the fallout of said games and the two big, big dismissals in the Premier League this weekend. So, let's begin. Manchester City 4, Liverpool 1. Liverpool went 1-0 up through Mo Salah, pretty much against the run of play. City 
were the better team in the first half without question. After scoring, Liverpool moved from their usual 4-3-3 into something more resembling a 4-4-1-1. Looked like they'd never, ever, ever played in this shape in their lives and proceeded to get their arses kicked. Julian Alvarez equalises on 27 minutes, a chain of mess in the Liverpool defence. Jordan Henderson not arsed, marking his man, Kevin De Bruyne, drawn to the ball, as always. Because he didn't mark De Bruyne, Andy Robertson had to go and press De Bruyne. Because Andy Robertson had to go and press, that left Riyad Mahrez free. That meant that Virgil van Dijk had to step out of the defensive line to go and mark Riyad Mahrez. Because Virgil van Dijk had to step out of the defensive line, Ibu Kanate had to slide across into a more central role because Ibu had to slide across, Trent had to slide across. What needed to happen then was that Harvey Elliott needed to get his ass back into right back, and he did not do that. The ball was worked from Mares to Gundogan to Jack Grealish, who was all alone. Elliott still didn't get back. Trent had to rush back out to try and deal with Grealish. He didn't do it well enough. A cross was played in, and Julian Alvarez was free to tap home from eight yards out. Now, having not been bothered to mark KDB, Jordan Henderson decided to run back towards his own penalty area, as is what he should be doing, except that as the ball was worked to Grealish, he broke stride and he eased off. And then when he realized that there was danger, that the striker he was looking straight at, who was unmarked, might get the ball, then he tried again. But it was too late, and he couldn't get back. So you've got two midfielders there whose inability to do defensive work and lack of desire to do defensive work causes a mess among Liverpool's back four. The back four was then blamed by all and sundry, including Jamie Carragher, who blamed Andy Robertson, some very silly people on social media who blamed Van Dijk, who blamed Ibu, and who blamed Trent. But the problem was the midfielders just didn't do their jobs. Uh, that was the score to half time, 1-1. 58 seconds into the second half. Uh, once again, Jordan Henderson just wasn't bothered marking his man. So KDB ran through the middle of the pitch. Uh, he was initially offside, but because... City players are not idiots. They didn't play the ball to him. Instead, the ball got switched out right. Nobody went with with KDB. He was allowed to run through on goal. Van Dijk tried to run after him, but had given too big a head start because, well, he wasn't his man to begin with. He was Henderson's. And KDB tapped home. uh, All very nice and simple. Uh, The third goal was just a complete mess from Liverpool. Statues. Do you remember? <clears throat> Some of you will have seen this. The the clip of Mark Goldbridge may well have been after a city game. Mark Goldbridge had a big temper tantrum about United's defenders just standing about like statues getting shot on by pigeons, and he just started shouting pigeons, pigeons, pigeons. That is exactly how I felt watching that goal. The lack of effort, desire, 
decision-making from these Liverpool defenders was shocking. Genuinely shocking. No decisiveness at all. Nobody willing to commit to a tackle. Nobody willing to just make a tackle. And City just pinged the ball about as if it was a training session. Eventually, the ball fell to Alvarez. He worked space, got a shot off. Trent did well to block it. Couldn't do anything about Gundogan picking the ball up and finishing with the the rebound. And that was that. That was 3-1. And then on 74 minutes, De Bruyne has now moved across to the the left-hand side, having had his way with Henderson. He decides to come across and have a laugh on the other side. Uh, He makes an overlapping run. Oxlade-Chamberlain doesn't make enough of an effort to get back. Trent is left 2v1 with Grealish and De Bruyne. Now, Trent doesn't commit either way. He doesn't make a full-hearted effort to get back to KDB. And when the ball is played back to Grealish, he doesn't make an effort to get to him either. But Oxlade-Chamberlain stands and watches all of this happen. Uh, Grealish finishes. And, And to be fair to Jack Grealish, who I have hammered repeatedly on this podcast, he had a very good game. He had a very good game on Saturday. Now, I could do without the diving. There were three or four blatant dives from Grealish in this game, but he did play very well, to his credit. Um, Liverpool were awful from start to finish. You'll find people, including the manager, that will say the first half was okay because they went in 1-1. Fair enough. If that's the bar that you're measuring by, fair enough. But the performance was nowhere near good enough. Liverpool were poor. City were class, multiple classes above. And yes, you can say that City are a better team than Liverpool this year. And City were at home, so City should win. But there's no excuse for that Liverpool performance. There's no excuse for their away form this season. But it does largely come down to effort. I tweeted during the game, City's players want this more than the Liverpool players do. And it's not just City players. You watch any game in the Premier League on any weekend and you will have a hard time finding any individual player who looks like they're trying less than this Liverpool team. This team looks like they've given up on the manager. They do. They look like they're not playing for him. Now, there's a couple of ways he can change that. Number one, he could resign, which he's not going to do. Number two, he could get rid of them. And if he went to the owners and said, I want to tear this down to the studs and get rid of all the senior players, everybody over the age of 25 is gone. We're getting rid of Virgil. We're getting rid of... Salah, we're getting rid of Henderson, we're getting rid of Fabinho, we're getting rid of Robertson. I think the owners would back him on that. If he said the only two players over that age we're going to keep are Allison and Diaz, and everybody else can go, Matip can go, Gomez can go, we're going to rebuild this thing back up around Ibu Kanate and around Darwin Nunes. The owners would back him. 100% they would back him to do that. They would give him the time and the patience to do it. But he's not going to do that either because he's far too loyal. 
So the other thing he can do is he could change his backroom staff. Because it's very clear the message is not getting through anymore. And when the message is not getting through, you have to look at who the messenger is. And the messenger in this case is Pep and Linders. And this is not to have a pop at Linders. But there is a reason Alex Ferguson used to change his backroom staff every few years. There's a reason he went from Brian Kidd to Steve McLaren to Carlos Quiros to Renny Muhlenstein and back to Carlos Quiros and then on to Mike Phelan. There is a reason for that. Because he always wanted the message that the players were getting to be fresh. And when they needed to hear from him, they would hear from him. But only when it was needed. Otherwise, he had people doing his bidding for him. And what that also allowed him to do was not be as close to the players. So that he could keep a manager-player relationship. He would be their friend, but he wasn't their mate. He would be their mentor, but he wasn't their dad. But Klopp, unfortunately, has crossed that line. Klopp is mates with these players. Klopp is too close to them. Klopp is too invested in them as people, not just as players. And I know some people don't like me saying this, but footballers are commodities. You have to take away the human side of it. That's why they get paid so much money. They're not doing this for the jollies. They're doing it because it's their job. And if we're all honest, footballers are hugely overpaid. Hugely overpaid. Now, I'm not angry with them. Get everything you can. I'd rather have the money in their pockets than in the pockets of billionaire owners, without question. But they are commodities. It is the life you sign up to. That's why they're bought and sold. That's why they have contracts. They're not there because they choose to be there. They're there because they're contractually obligated to be there. They're footballers because they chose to become footballers. But just as easily as they can be bought, they can be sold. And you've got to ensure that when it comes time to move players on, you're not keeping them because you've got a personal relationship with them. And unfortunately for Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp has too much of a personal relationship with a number of these players. Bobby Firmino should have gone a couple of years ago. He's leaving on a free this summer, but Klopp wanted him to stay. James Milner should have left in 2020. He's still at the club and Klopp wants him to stay another year. He hasn't been good in years Years. In truth, he's never been great for Liverpool. His first season he played in midfield, he was average. Liverpool were a mid-table team. His second season he played left-back, he was average. His third season he became a rotation player. He ended up starting a Champions League final because Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain got injured. 
But that midfield with him and Henderson has always been a catastrophe. Always. Go and look at the results with the Milnerson midfield. Dreadful. But Liverpool didn't start winning things until Milner was out of the team. 1819, he's squad player. 1920, squad player. Last season, squad player. This season, he's on track for more appearances than he has had in the last four years. And unsurprisingly, Liverpool are a mid mid table team again. Not just on him, but that is a sign of the times. Jurgen needs to make changes because Liverpool are going completely in the wrong direction. Moving on, Bournemouth 2, Fulham 1. Fulham went one up through Andreas Pereira, a really well-worked goal. Marcus Tavernier scored a worldie on 50 to equalise. And Dominic Solanke took advantage of Anthony Robertson getting his feet in a mess and not clearing a simple ball to bundle home a winner. Really good, really important win for Bournemouth. They needed that three points badly. I would still bet on them going down. But they're not going down without a fight. And you've got to give Gary O'Neill credit for that. Nottingham Forest won. Wolves won. Brennan Johnson scored after 38 minutes to put Wolves one up. Daniel Pedence equalised on 83 after Forest should have had this game put to bed. This game should have been over and done with. Jose Sam made a couple of good saves. Forest squandered a couple of good chances. Pedence equalised, grabs the point for Wolves. It's a good point for Wolves. It's a decent point for Forrest. They can't be too upset, but they should have won the game. But Daniel Pedence should have been sent off. Daniel Pedence spat at a Nottingham Forest player. And this needs to get reviewed and he needs to face a ban. There is no question. You can see it. You can see the movement in his mouth. You can see the movement of his head. And you can see the reaction of the player who immediately wipes his face. He should have been sent off for spitting. There's no place in that, like for that in the game. Crystal Palace 2, Leicester City 1. Daniel Everson own goal. It's a great free kick from Eberichi Eze. Hits the crossbar, bounces down, hits Iverson, Everson, whatever his name is, and goes into the net. 1-0. Actually, I'm wrong. Excuse me. Leicester went one up in this game. Well-worked goal down the right. Ball played back to Ricardo Pereira. Steps into the box with it and just lashes it into the back. And at that put Leicester one up. Three minutes later, Palace equalised. Looks like we were heading for a 1-1 draw. In what was a pretty good game, Palace were really good in this game. Dominant. Dominant. 31 shots to three. Nine on target to two. Now, you'd want to take more of those chances. Um, But Jean-Philippe Mateta, who'd come off the bench, just simple ball in behind the defence. He moves on to it and finishes well. Big blow for Palace in this game in that they lost Wilf Zaha to injury. And hopefully he won't be out for too long. But you do have to give uh, credit in that goal to Mateta, who'd only been on the pitch a few minutes, and Jordan Ayew, who was the one who'd come on to replace uh, Wilf Zaha. 
just before half time. I think just before half time. Um, Ayu, who who I just think is well past his best and didn't really impact the game until his involvement, that winner cutting in from the left and slipping the ball through Leicester's shambolic defence for Mateta to move on to and finish quite well. Um, moving on, Arsenal 4, Leeds 1. Gabriel Jesus scored a penalty on 35 minutes. It was undoubtedly a penalty. If anyone can explain what Luke Ayling is doing in that situation, I'd, I'd genuinely love to see it. Uh, ben White made it 2 on 47 minutes. Just horrible defending. Once again, Luke Ayling, all at sea. Horrible defending. Don't know why Melier allows that ball across the face of his goal. But Ben White comes in at the back post, almost misses from a yard out, pings in and off the bottom of the crossbar. But that's two. And then Gabriel Jesus made a three on 55 minutes. Again, you would question what on earth Luke Ayling is doing. Rasmus Christensen pulled one back for Leeds on 76 minutes, a heavily deflected shot that hits Zinchenko and kind of wrong-footed Ramsdale. But Granit Xhaka wrapped it up on 84 minutes, drifting in between Christensen and once again Luke Ayling to make it 4-1, a comfortable win for Arsenal. Brighton 3, Brentford 3. This was a really good game of football. Uh, Pontus Janssen scored on 10 minutes. Just fantastic header. But I think Lewis Dunk should do better. I really do think Lewis Dunk should do better here. But an outstanding header. Uh, Matoma equalised on 21 minutes. Simple football. Route one, long ball, goalkeeper over the top of everybody. Matoma runs onto it and finishes. Quality. Uh, a minute later, Ivan Tony equalises. Again, Lewis Dunk, who's had a really good season. Like a really, really good season. And may actually may actually be in my team of the season right now. Him and Botman might be my centre-backs, but he had a stinker here at fault in but Not... Now, look, he was completely at fault for the second goal. I don't know what he's doing. The first one, it's just it's a great run and header, but I do think he could do better. But this was this was shocking defending. Um, so that was 2-2. Then Solly March sets up Danny Welbeck on 28 minutes, and it's 2-2. Two, uh, two, two, sorry, Tony made it 2-1. Welbeck makes it 2-2. It's an absolute cracker of a game for the first half hour. I was watching it trying to record post-match Raw uh, after the Liverpool shambles, and I genuinely couldn't have cared less about the pod. This game was brilliant. Um, Four minutes into the second half, Ethan Pinnock made it 3-2. Another set piece, decent finish, solid goal. From there, Brighton were all over Brentford. Just peppered their goal, dominated the ball, forced them back, and really did everything bar score. But in the last minute, the ball drops to Undav in the penalty area, and as he goes to shoot, Aaron Hickey throws himself in to try and block the shot. It hits his arm, hits the crossbar, and goes over. It's clearly a penalty. The penalty is given. And when it's Alexis McAllister from 12 yards, you know he's scoring. 3-3, I think a fair result for both sides. 
I think both can go home happy with the point. Uh, Chelsea nil, Aston Villa two. Uh, Chelsea nom- dominated the ball. They dominated in terms of shots, but I never felt like they were going to win the game. Ollie Watkins put Villa one up on 18 minutes. Now, maybe before this, you could make an argument that Chelsea might have won the game, but this just summed up everything that's gone wrong at Chelsea this year defensively. It's a bad ball from Douglas Luiz. It's under hit. Koulibaly is going to deal with it. But Cucurella, for reasons known only to himself, jumps up and heads the ball over his own teammate in behind. Ollie Watkins simply runs onto it and lifts, lifts it over the onrushing Kepa. Now, I don't have any sympathy for Graham Potter in this situation. Because if you're going to line up with a back three of Reese James, Kaladu Koulibaly and Mark Cucurella in a Premier League game, I think you deserve to lose. Because that's a level of arrogance that I'm just not willing to get on board with. Stop playing fullbacks as centre-backs, especially fullbacks who aren't particularly good defensively. Mark Cucurella is a really good attacking left-back. He's not a good defensive player. He's never been a good defensive player. Now, maybe this is your attempts to get him and Chilwell in the team. But it's an absolute nonsense. And I don't understand the, the insistence on playing Ruben Loftus-Cheek as a wing-back either. Like, sitting on your bench, you've got Trevor Chalaba And you've got Benoit Badiashile. You put them two either side of Koulibaly, play James as a right wing-back, and then either Chilwell or Cucurella as a left wing back, you have A, a functioning defence, and B, players playing in their own positions. So I have no sympathy for Graham Potter on this. None. Um, Villa would make it two on 56 minutes. A worldie from John McGinn. An absolute worldie. Ball played to him at the edge of the box. Hits it first time and just whips it. Almost like he was... he, He hit it like he'd hit a corner. And just whipped it. Got loads of curl on it and found the corner of the net. Really good goal. Uh, It ended 2-0. Potter came out with some strange claims after the game, going on about how McGinn's chance was a low XG chance. And if you look at the XG, everything was good from Chelsea. Like, shut up. Shut up. Your team were abject. Villa didn't even play all that well. And still beat you 2-0. Villa. Not, not Arsenal. Not City. Villa. A team who started the day in the bottom half. Came to your house. Didn't play anywhere near as good as they're capable of playing. And still went home 2-0 winners. So shut up with your XG. Shut up that everything went to plan. You just couldn't find the goals. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. West Ham won. Southampton nil. Naif Agard with the only goal of the game on 25 minutes. Uh, Set piece from the right. Swung in. Good run, good header, good goal. Simple as that. Uh, Basunu made a couple of good saves to keep it at 1-0. Southampton wasted a couple of chances of their own. This wasn't, by any means, an impressive performance by West Ham. 
I said Hampton could feel a little bit aggrieved that they didn't get a draw, but good three points for West Ham and keeps Moyes in the job for another week. Whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing, I don't know. I think it's the wrong thing. I think he should be gone, but, you know. Newcastle 2, Manchester United 0. Get the Norwich scarves out. It's all the Glazers' fault. United got pummeled in this game. Pummeled. This should have been five or six. No word of exaggeration. Joe Willock missed not one, but two sitters in the first half. He did put them one up on 65 minutes. Great ball from Gamerish. Header back across the goal by St. Maximum. He finishes from close range. Callum Wilson wrapped it up on 88. Jolington had missed a great chance before that. Willock should have had a hat-trick. Jolington should have scored. Wilson did score. They missed another couple of chances as well. Like this was this was dominant from Newcastle. This was as bad as well as Newcastle have played all season. Gamerish was just on a completely different level to everybody in that United team. And as I predicted, as soon as as soon as Rashford went cold, United have struggled. I know that once again, Lissandra Martinez was taken off. Um, his gnoming powers must not have been very strong last night. Uh, since winning the EFL Cup on the 26th of, of February, Manchester United have now played three league games. They've lost two and drawn at home with bottom clubs at Hampton. And the aggregate score is 9-0. Liverpool put seven past them. Liverpool, who are eighth, put seven past them. Southampton should have beaten them at Old Trafford, and then they got comprehensively outplayed. And again, this should have been a walloping. This should have been five. And apparently, it's all the Glazers' fault. Because what you need to know is that to get this Manchester United team to fourth, Ten Hag is working miracles. He's working on a budget. He hasn't been backed. You understand, he wasn't backed. He hasn't been given the money to spend. Now, your eyes and ears might have seen and heard that during the summer transfer window, Manchester United spent $15 million on Terrell Malasia, 50 plus on Martinez, 60 on Casemiro, 80-odd on Anthony also brought in Christian Eriksen on a free on big wages, but you understand he hasn't been backed. They brought in Sabitzer, uh, Veghorst, and Butland in January, but you understand he hasn't been backed. Hasn't been given the players. He's working miracles with a squad that cost a billion quid to be fourth. Uh, 22 points off top. 14 points off second, only one point separating them and Tottenham, who've been dreadful. 
Antonio Conte wasn't working miracles. He got sacked. But Ten Hag is working miracles. He's changed everything. What do you mean they played counter-attacking football under Ollie? the, The guy's a genius. Who else would have played such a deep defensive line? It's absolute madness. United win a game. This fella is a genius. The Norwich scarves are packed away. There's no grumbling, no mumbling. Everything is great. The the era has begun. The era of Oli Bowl 2.0. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with playing that style of football. But let's not pretend it's some groundbreaking thing. We saw Solskjaer do this. And thus far, the only difference between Ten Hag and Solskjaer is that he won a League Cup. That's it. That's the only difference between them. The football is exactly the same. Deep block, panic stations galore. They transition a bit better. They've got better patterns of play. I'll give them that. They're clearly a better coach team. But the football is very much the same. And heavily reliant on Marcus Rashford and Bruno Fernandes to carry the load and attack. That's it. There's nothing wrong with it, but let's not pretend it's revolutionary. It's the same thing Oli was doing. They're just better coached. And the only difference is you won the League Cup. But you might still finish fifth. You might still finish fifth. Because Newcastle are now ahead of you, having played the same number of games. Now, I still think United will get top four. I think they'll get it comfortably, in truth. But that's in large part because Newcastle are overachieving this season. Spurs have been awful this season. And I just don't think Brighton have quite enough to make up the ground. But you're getting top four largely because Liverpool are crap and Chelsea are an embarrassment. Because in a normal season, they'd both be significantly better than this United team. Liverpool beat them 7-0. That is all the games we had at the weekend. Uh, Congrats to Eddie Howe. He's done a very, very good job this year. Um, Should absolutely be in the running for manager of the year. We have one game tonight. It is Everton against Tottenham. Uh, If Tottenham win, they will go third. Now, they will have played two games more than both Newcastle and United. But you would rather have points on the board, especially in a season like this. If Everton win, it's catastrophic for them because they're in the bottom three. And they will have played a game less, sorry, a game more than the teams above them. So as things stand, Arsenal are top, 72 points, 12 points clear. Sorry, eight points clear. Eight points clear of Man City. City have a game in hand. Arsenal play Liverpool next. Then they play West Ham. Then they play Southampton. Then they play City. They play Chelsea. They go to Newcastle. And they play Brighton. This is where I believe, this seven-game run is where I believe Manchester City will overhaul Arsenal and go on to win their third straight league title. I think there's multiple defeats 
in this run for Arsenal. And when I look at City, I, I think City are going to run the slate. City will play Southampton next, then Leicester. They've got Bayern in the Champions League. They've got uh, Sheffield United in the League Cup. Then they get Arsenal. Then it's Fulham. They'll be on the beach. Then it's West Ham, Leeds, Everton. Their run is significantly easier than Arsenal's run. Now, they've got a game against Brighton that needs to be rearranged, and they've also got Chelsea at home to come. They're the two tough games on their slate, along with Arsenal at home. But I'd back them to beat Arsenal. I'd back them to beat Chelsea at home. They finished the season at Brentford. I think they'll have the title wrapped up before we get to the final day. Um, Newcastle are third, 50 points, 14 behind City. United level points at Newcastle, same number of games played. Then it's Tottenham, then Brighton. Six points behind Spurs, but with two games in hand and a superior goal difference. Then it's Brentford. Then in eighth place, it's Liverpool. Uh, Just for those who are unaware, away from Anfield this season, Liverpool have taken 12 points. Bottom side, Southampton, have taken 13 points on their travels this season from the same number of games played, and they've conceded less goals. Uh, Then it's Aston Villa, one point behind Liverpool, but have played a game more. Then it's Chelsea, sorry, then it's Fulham, 39 points. Then it's Chelsea on 38 points. But they do play Liverpool in their next game, which is tomorrow night. Then there's an eight-point gap to Crystal Palace, who are two points ahead of Wolves, who are one point ahead of West Ham, who are level on points with Nottingham Forest and Bournemouth, but have played a game less, also played two games less than Wolves and Crystal Palace. Now, Given they've got those games in hand, it may well be that West Ham end up finishing 12th or something. They cannot be allowed to paint this as anything other than a disastrous league season. Anybody who's got that much talent still being in a relegation battle at this point in the season is a disaster. After West Ham, it's Forest, it's Bournemouth, same number of points, but a game more. Then it's Leeds and Everton, a point behind Bournemouth, Forest and West Ham. Leeds have the superior goal difference. Then it's Leicester. Still in the relegation battle. 25 points from 28 games. 17 defeats in the Premier League this season. Bottom of the table are Southampton. They're two points behind Leicester. Now, they've also played a game more than Leicester, Everton, Leeds, Bournemouth and Forest two games more than West Ham. So that's a big disadvantage. Forest and Bournemouth are the teams with the worst goal difference in the league. Forest minus 27, Bournemouth minus 28, Southampton is minus 24. In terms of goals conceded, Bournemouth have the worst defence in the league. But they're They're looking more solid. 
Nottingham Forest second. Again, they look more solid. Then it's Leicester, and they look a mess. An absolute mess. And when we go to break, sorry, when we come back from this break, we will discuss the, the change that they've just made. And then we'll talk about Chelsea. See you in a sec. Can't wait. Dong, the Brodge is gone. Brendan Rodgers has been sacked as Leicester City manager after four years in the job. For months, I've been saying he needed to go. It was very clear he wasn't going to turn things around. That was apparent having watched him at Liverpool, having watched the way things went at Liverpool. Brendan, when things go against him, just doesn't know how to turn it around. Now, we'll give him credit. He won an FA Cup with Leicester. That is a tremendous achievement, and nobody can ever take that away from him. But when we look at his time at Leicester, he has failed for the same reasons he failed at Liverpool. His inability to coach a defence and his appalling transfer market strategy. That is why Brendan has failed. That is why Brendan is being sacked, uh, has been sacked. If we look at the Leicester squad for the FA Cup final in 2021. Now, he's been at the club at this point over two years. Kasper Schmeichel, he was there when he took over. Wes Fafana, Johnny Evans, Kagla Seonchu. Fafana he bought, the other two were there. Tim Castanier, he bought. Tielemans, Ndidi, Luke Thomas were all there when he took over. He bought Aosi Perez. Ianacho and Vardy were there. On the bench, Danny Ward, Wes Morgan, Daniel Amarty, Ricardo Pereira, James Madison, Mark Albright, and Hamza Chowdhury, Nampali's Mendy were all there when he took over. Dennis Pryor, he bought. So in that match day 20, there's four players that he bought. Three of them have flopped at the club. Prias, Perez, and Castanier. Fafana was a success, but a limited success, because he missed quite a lot of time there, and obviously he's now gone. They made a big profit on him, but he was a success. The squad Brendan inherited, Kasper Schmeichel, He's now gone. Danny Ward, still there. Ben Chilwell, sold. Cagnacionchu, still there. Wes Morgan, now retired. Johnny Evans, still there. Ricardo Pereira, still there. Maguire was sold. Benkovic, uh, Rogers released on a free for some reason. Christian Fuchs, I think he's retired. Uh, into midfield. Damari Gray, he binned off. He's now playing tremendous football for Everton. Uh, James Madison's still there, Mark Albrighton's still there, Daniel Amarty's still there, Harvey Barnes' still there, Yuri Thielman's still there, Nepali's Mendy, Wilfred Zaha, these are all still there, Hamza Chedri's out on loan, Ian Acho, still there, Jamie Vardy's still there. Like, what I've listed there is the players that are still largely the key players at Leicester. His recruitment has led him, is where he's been, well, he's let himself down. So in his first summer, 
They signed James Justin. He was someone they'd been tracking for a year. I don't think we give Rogers credit for him. Aosi Perez was a Rogers signing. Tielemans was there on loan when he took over. Dennis Pryat was a Rogers signing. So he signs four players, two of whom, one of whom had already been there on loan, one of whom they'd been tracking for ages and had tried to buy the previous January. The two he's responsible for, Perez and Pryat, they both flopped. And that was significant money that he spent on those two, about $35 million. Um, into... 2020, Tim Castanier flopped, Wes Fafana success, and Cheng is under on a loan, and he didn't work out either. 2021, Rogers is in control of things here. Pat Sandaka hasn't worked out. Bubakari Samare hasn't worked out. Ryan Bertrand hasn't worked out. And Yannick Vestigard was an abomination. So none of those signings worked for Brandon. Last summer, they bring in Woot Faze. Fair to say it hasn't worked all that well. In January, he brought in Christensen, who looks a real player, and Harry Souter, who I just don't understand. And they brought in Tete on loan, who started well and hasn't looked great since. You look at the Leicester team that lined up at the weekend. To face Crystal Palace. Goalkeeper Danny, or goalkeeper was uh, Everson. He was there when he took over. The back four is all him and is a significantly worse back four than the one he inherited. Ndidi and Dewsbury Hall were there. Madison and Barnes were there. Daka hasn't worked. Tete. He's, like I said, started well, has been quite average since. On the bench, Ward, Sayonchu, Vardy, Ianacho, Amarty, Ricardo, Mendy, and Thomas. They were all there when he took over. Samari's on the bench. hasn't worked. He took over a, a team that was strong defensively, that had a good defensive organization, good defensive mindset. And he's just made them worse defensively. And his signings just haven't worked. Like, if we're being really honest here, we'll withhold judgment on the lads that arrived this season. But Fafana's the only one. If we even give him credit for James Justin, that's two. Two signings in four years. In three years, we take it this season's lads. You have spent a lot of money. More to the point, they've held on to Ndidi and Madison and Barnes and Tielemans. When they should have moved them on, their model was to move those players on. One big sale a season. They sold Maguire. They sold Chilwell. Madison or Tielemans should have gone next but they've held on to them. And when he cries about the lack of backing, it's because you insisted on keeping those players. Leicester's model was clear. One big sale a season. But Brendan thought he was somewhere else. He hasn't turned the squad over well enough. 
things have gone very, very stale. And they've gotten significantly worse defensively. And if we look at, again, the players that were there when he took over, and just look at the defenders that were in the squad that are still there. Kagna Sionchu in 1920 was a top five at worst centre-back in the league. This summer he'll leave on a free and he's been an abomination for two years. Johnny Evans has been injury prone. Ricardo Pereira was a top three left, a top three right back in the league at the time. Now, in large part because of injuries, but now he's just not particularly good. He's not even starting for them. And the defenders he's brought in, they just haven't been good enough. His his best midfield is all players that were there when he took over. Indeedy, Tielemans, Jewsbury Hall. Took him too long to get Jewsbury Hall in the team, by the way. Madison and Barnes. But the thing is, that that first full season, you look at their defensive record. 41 goals conceded in 38 games. It's not great, but it's not dreadful. 49 in 38 Sorry, 49 in 48 across all competitions. That's pretty respectable. Okay, that's pretty respectable. That's with the defenders that were there when he took over. The next season, they concede 61 in 53. So the defense does get a little bit worse, but the team gets more attacking. Last season... 87 goals conceded in 58 games. 59 conceded in 38 in the league. That's atrocious. Genuinely atrocious. And this season, 53 conceded in 35 games. That's atrocious. They've gotten markedly worse defensively the more input he's had on the defensive side. The individuals have gotten worse. And if we're being honest here, Fafana didn't improve while he was at Leicester. The guy who joined Chelsea is the same guy who was at St. Etienne. Now, part of that is because he missed so much time at Chelsea with the different injuries. But he didn't improve there. Wout Faze hasn't improved this year. Sionchu's gotten worse. Vestergaard was a disaster. Harry Suter, I know it's early, but he just, he just doesn't look anywhere near mobile enough to play in this league. He has made them considerably worse defensively since taking over, and his transfers haven't worked. It's the same reason he failed at Liverpool. Every defender that works under Rodgers gets worse as a defender. He'll improve them as ball players because he is a decent coach. But until he parks his ego and admits that he needs help on the defensive side of the football... And when he is dealing with recruitment, his eye for talent is appalling. Genuinely, as bad as you'll find. And even Fafana, like, we'll give him credit for it, but Leicester had long been after him, and everybody in Europe was after him. Leicester did brilliantly to get him, but it wasn't like a thing that they found it an unknown gem. Everybody was after Wes Fafana. 
he'll get a lot of praise for the two near misses of top four. But again, these are things that need to be looked at. 1920, they're in the top four for all bar five weeks of the season. When football stopped due to the beginning of the pandemic, Leicester were third and had a 98.7% chance of top four football. But if we really look at their results that season, they had a great first half of the season. Through 17 games, they've won 12, drawn three, and lost two. And then it all started to get real wobbly. Beaten by City, hammered by Liverpool. Beat West Ham, beat Newcastle. Lost to Southampton, lost to Burnley. Beat West Ham, drew at Chelsea, drew at Wolves. Lost to City, lost to Norwich. Hammered Villa, football stops. Coming back, they have a 98.7% chance. According to 538, statistical model, they have a 98.7% chance of top four football. It's like 97% chance to finish third. They draw with Watford. They draw with Brighton. They lose to a bad Everton team. They beat Palace. They draw with Arsenal. They get hammered by Bournemouth. They beat Sheffield United. They get battered by Spurs. And they lose to Manchester United on the final day of the season. And they don't just miss out by goal difference or by a point. They miss out by a full four points. A full four points. That is a collapse. From January 1st, when they beat Leicester, I'm sorry, when they beat Newcastle, they won only four games. Four of their last 17. That is a collapse, no matter what way you look at it. Now we move into the following season. Again, they finished fifth. They're in the top four every single week up until week 36. They never drop out of the top four. They're top for three weeks. They've been third since January. They go into the final two games of the season, third in the league. Liverpool are a mess. They've got no centre-backs. Injuries everywhere because they've got no centre-backs. The midfielders are playing centre-backs. They've got no midfield. The whole team is a mess. Chelsea are just a shambles in terms of league form. Now, Tuchel did turn things around really, really well, but they're a shambles. Their final two games, they play Chelsea away, they play Spurs at home. They lose to both of them. But it's not those results that hurt them. They managed to lose five of their last nine 
and only won three. They finished one point outside the top four that year. Now, they had a worse goal difference, so they would have needed two more points. But you're telling me you couldn't have picked up two more points from West Ham away, Southampton away, Newcastle at home. Newcastle were awful. You couldn't have got into that final day against Spurs when you went 1-0 up. You couldn't have held on. Spurs weren't particularly good. They bottled it. They bottled it twice. And Brendan has a history of bottling things. He bottled the league title with Liverpool in 13-14. Liverpool had that title wrapped up. All he needed to do was play Chelsea at home, take the draw that, that Jose Gift wrapped. Take the draw, go and beat Palace, beat Newcastle, title one. Don't need to worry about it. Couldn't do it, bottled it. Bottled promotion with, with Swansea as well. Should have gone up automatically. Couldn't. Brendan bottles things at the end of seasons. When the pressure gets on him, he bottles things. His European track record is farcically poor. Like I say, he's just he's a poor defensive manager and he's really, really bad when it comes to identifying talent. He is a good coach. He can get a team playing attacking football. There will be jobs for him. And I actually think Crystal Palace could be a really good fit for him. Because if I look at that Palace squad, I think there's a lot of players there that would work well under Brendan Rodgers. Now, as I've said before, they need a right back and a goalkeeper. They need those things regardless of who takes over. But if you give him a decent back four that's young and that you can keep together for a couple of years, at least then he has a base. You give him Dekure in midfield. They've got Ahamada. I think he'd quite like Will Hughes as well. He was linked with Will Hughes when he was Liverpool manager. I think he'd quite like Will Hughes because he does like having a left footer in midfield. But you give him Elise and you give him Zaha and Eze. Maybe not Zaha, he might leave, but certainly Elise and Eze. And I think Rodgers will elevate the two of them. Look at what he's done for Madison, for Barnes, for Dewsbury Hall. Brendan is good with creative players. Creative attacking players will always do well under Brendan. It happened at Swansea, it happened at Liverpool, it happened at Celtic, it's happened at Leicester. They're the type of players he connects with. They're the type of players he can help elevate. I think Rodgers would do quite well at Palace. I think he could have them in the top half. Couple of additions, doesn't need huge amounts. As long as he's not given control of transfers, I think Rogers could do well there. But I will say this he needs to learn his lesson from the defensive side of things. He needs to bring in somebody on his coaching staff who is a defensive specialist. Now, I'm not sure what's going to happen with his uh, coaching staff at Leicester. I don't know if they'll come with him. He had Colo Toure for a while at Leicester, and that seemed to kind of hold the defence together a little bit. But we'll wait and see. Uh, His assistant manager has gone with him. 
Adam Sadler is there. Mike Stoll is there. I have a feeling most of his staff might well have moved, have been been let go with him. But I think Palace is a really good fit for him. I really do. Young players, attack-minded players, great fan base. Always a proper atmosphere at Selhurst. I think Rogers football would fit really well there. If I was Palace, I'd be letting them know, come the end of the season, we want to sit down and have a conversation. Take a couple of months off, refresh yourself, but we want to have a conversation with you. You're our first pick come summer. As far as who Leicester should get to replace him, I think it's Graham Potter. But I think like with Palace and Rogers, they should tell him, take a couple of months off, rest, relax. We're going to go the short-term route. I've seen Rafa Benitez's name mentioned today. I think Rafa, to go in and keep them up, I think he makes sense. I think Rafa would keep them up. And I think then they should go for Potter. Graham Potter has been sacked as Chelsea manager after less than seven months in the job. Uh, He oversaw 31 games. He won only 12 of them. Uh, Eight draws, 11 defeats. This has been a disaster. A complete disaster. And it was a completely predictable disaster. The decision to sack Thomas Tuchel was a stupid one. They just spent a fortune in the summer transfer window. With Tuchel having a big input on those transfers, and then they sacked him. Thomas Tuchel's a European Cup winner. Graham Potter was managing Brighton. He needed an in-between move before he was ready for a club like Chelsea. I think Leicester's an in-between move. I think Leicester is a bigger club than Brighton. And I I say that, I, lo- I love Brighton. But I think Leicester's a bigger club than Brighton with higher expectations. I wouldn't put this season against them. I think they're a bigger club. Now, look, I think there's bigger clubs, West Ham, Everton, Leeds, Newcastle. I think those jobs are even bigger again. I think they're the ones that Potter should have been going for. But I think he needed an in-between move before he was going to be ready for a club like Chelsea. I think when when Chelsea look for a manager, I think they need to be looking for somebody with a history of success, which Potter just didn't have. Now, I don't have much sympathy for him because, well, there's three main reasons. Number one, I didn't like the way he went about his departure from Brighton. I thought it was underhanded and sneaky. He went behind their backs to talk to Chelsea. The deal was done before Chelsea even approached Brighton. So I didn't like that. Number two, I have found his approach at Chelsea to be a little bit too arrogant for my liking. Like I mentioned earlier, why are you playing Reese James and Cucurella as centre-backs in the back three? Like, What is the thinking here? James is a much better right wing back 
than Ruben Loftus Cheek and can also perform that hybrid role of moving into a midfield position. Chalaba is a much better centre back than Reese James and can also play right back in a four if and when you flex. So you would have been better off doing it that way. Then we look at the other side. Badi Ashile is a much better centre back than Cucurella. He can also play left back in a four when you flex. And if he was the one going left back with James right back, that's a lot better than Cucurella left back and Ruben Loftus-Cheek dropping into right back. And your centre-back pairing would then become Chalaba and Koulibaly, not James and Koulibaly. So again, every aspect of this would be better. And then Chilwell or Cucurella is is a coin toss for me. I think they're both uh, good attacking fullbacks with you know, similar skill sets, to be fair. Um, so I haven't liked that. I, I, and I haven't liked what I've heard from him, like the, the, the post-match comments about XG and statistics. And This is a results-based business. You're going to be judged on your results. You're not, you don't go to Wembley to play a cup final and get the who got the higher XG trophy. You get the FA Cup for winning the game, for scoring the most goals. That's what it's about. The third reason I don't feel sorry for him is because he's just secured generational wealth for himself and his family. Graham Potter was smart enough to secure a fully guaranteed contract before going to Chelsea. Now, what that means is that Chelsea will have to pay him out every penny that's left in his contract. And Matt Law can shill for the owners all he wants. This is true. They're going to pay him out. Now, what they will do is they'll pay him over the course of the contract. So let's just say, for example, Graham Potter earns, I don't know, eight million a year. Seems about right at one of those clubs with his experience level. You know, Klopp is on 12 or 13, Pep the same. Tuchel was on 11, but again, more experienced, won a Champions League, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think Potter's probably on maybe seven million, whatever. Rather than getting paid every two weeks, Graham Potter will get his annual salary in a lump sum at the start of each footballing season. So July 1st, he will get paid for the 23-24 season. July 1st, 2024, he will get paid for the 24-25 season. And so on and so forth until the end of this five-year contract. So that's about 50 million that they're going to pay out to Potter and his staff, remember, because they all got long contracts as well. They paid 20 million to get him. They paid more to get his staff. They paid Tuchel and his staff to go away. So you're looking at somewhere in the region of about 90 plus million that this six-month or six-and-a-half-month spell has lasted. Now, Bruno Salter, who came with Potter, uh, he is staying. He's decided to stick stick around. The rest of the staff seem to be leaving. Uh, He's sticking around. 
I don't really know what to make of this. Did he did he stab Potter in the back? I know he had a bit of a, rela- a relationship with uh, Win Stanley, who's one of the sporting directors, who's just a recruitment guy, um, and who apparently has been behind the decision to to get rid of Potter, which is really harsh as well, considering Potter's the reason you're at Chelsea. But yeah, all all things considered, we're looking at you know eighty to ninety million that Todd Bowley is going to be out of pocket on a seven month experiment with a manager who clearly wasn't ready for this job. Um, I don't think it damages Potter too much because he'd been on an upward trajectory. It hasn't been a long time. It's not like he's failed here for three years. And everybody can look at the state of the place and say, well, like you're working under an owner that doesn't know what he's doing. And they've just signed far too many players. And they haven't bought well enough. And a lot of the players they've bought haven't worked so far. So I don't think he'll be too badly damaged by this. I think Leicester is the ideal job for him. Now, there's a bit of a rebuild needed there, obviously. Things need to change defensively. Things need to change in midfield. Thielemans is going to leave on a free. Indeedy's broken down and only has a year left and probably needs to be sold. Madison needs to be sold because he's only got a year left. So you do have to completely start over at Leicester. But there is a foundation there. Christensen is a really good young left back. Harvey Barnes is excellent. I think he'd get more out of Dhaka. Sumari still has lots of talent. James Justin, when he gets back from the injury, is a really good right back. You can build from there. I think Leicester should go for Potter. As for Chelsea, the name doing the rounds... Oh, Ian Acho, I think, actually would be brilliant for Graham Potter. Uh, Actually, Guy has the odds here uh, for the next Leicester manager. Uh, Potter is favourite, then Benitez. I would go Benitez for the short term, then Potter. And then it's Ange Postacoglu, no chance. Uh, Nigel Pearson, for some reason, is on the list. Ralph Hasenhutl. In the summer, maybe. Not now. You put him in now, they're definitely going down. Uh, Gerard is just not a good manager. John Dahl Thomason, no. Jesse Marsh, not at this point. Pochettino's not taking that job. Michael Carrick needs a lot longer where he is. Patrick Vieira. I think he should take some time away. I don't like when managers get sacked and jump into another job straight away. Uh, Mike Stoll, he's the goalkeeping coach there. Um, And Adam Sadler, I believe, is also one of the coaches there, isn't he? Yeah, he is the current joint caretaker manager. Um, And is quite well regarded as a coach, to be fair. But I, I think I think Potter taking over in the summer and having a couple of guys there that are already good coaches is is what's needed. Um, Nagelsmann is the odds-on favourite to take the Chelsea job. I think it would be calamitous for him to take the job. He's just been sacked by Bayern. He's a young manager with no long track record of success. He's won one Bundesliga title for Bayern Munich, which is like getting a free toy with a Happy Meal. 
I don't think Julian Nagelsmann is in a position where he can afford to be sacked again. And if he goes to Chelsea, I think he will be sacked within 18 months because I think that's the culture of the club. I think Bowley is too reactive, doesn't understand how football works and really and truly is a clown. And they might well go and spend another bunch of money this summer, but then you're going to be screwed. So if I was him, I'd run a mile. Uh, Rodgers would be funny, but I don't think there's any chance that Chelsea would consider it. I do wonder if Jose would go back under a different manager. Luis Enrique is a name that's out there. He's available. It makes sense. I'm not a huge fan, but I could see him having the ego to take it. I don't think Zidane would have interest. Hansi Flick is busy. Roberto De Zerbi's going to laugh. Diego Simeone is not coming to England for that. Uh, John Terry would be hysterical. I don't think they'll go Amram. I don't think they'll go Fr- uh, Thomas Frank because I-, I think they'll want someone a bit more of an established name. Frank Lampard would also be hilarious. Pochettino is there at 16-1, to 1, same as Luis Enrique. And I think they're probably the two that Chelsea should narrow it down to. If I was them, I wouldn't take it, but I think they're the two they'll narrow it down to, and I think they'll land on one. I think Nagelsmann's inexperience at the very elite level will count against him. Pochettino's been at Spurs. He's been at PSG. Enrique was at Barcelona. He's been Spain manager. I think they're more suited to walking in to a high-pressure environment. I don't think Nagelsmann has... I don't think he has the personality for it either, to be honest. He just doesn't have the track record. I don't know that Nagelsmann walks in and commands the dressing room. And that's a problematic dressing room at Chelsea. But I think Pochettino and Enrique do. I think Pochettino and Enrique command the dressing room. If I was them, I would probably go with Pochettino. Because I'm not a big Luis Enrique fan. Um, but I could understand if they did go Enrique. He's got he's got the track record. He won a treble with Barcelona. He won back to back league titles with Barcelona. But that treble season was special. Now I think I could probably win a treble with Barcelona if I had Busquets and Iniesta, prime Busquets and Iniesta just at the tail of his prime, and the greatest front three ever put together. I reckon I could do pretty well. Um, but you know he did a pretty good job with Spain. Um, I would go Pochettino though. I think that squad is set up well for Pochettino football. I do. And the other thing that worries me about Nagelsmann is I was watching this video of him talking about how he used his defensive midfielder last night and he would absolutely waste Enzo Fernandez in that defensive midfield role. He absolutely would 100% waste him in that role. No question. For me, they should go Pochettino. Leicester should go Potter. And I think Palace should go Brendan Rodgers. I do. I think Palace should go for Brendan Rodgers. Southampton, I think, in the summer should revisit the Jesse Marsh option. Even if they go down, I think they should revisit it. Who else needs a manager this summer? Just Leeds, isn't it? Isn't that the only other one currently without a manager? I think they know who they want. I think the two guys they want are Arnie Slot, who's at Feyenoord, 
who turned them down because he wants to stay, see out the season and win the title. And Andoni Iraola of uh, Rayo Vallecano, who said to him in the middle of the season, we're not going to let you go now, but in the summer we, we will be open to it. I think one of them is Leeds manager next season, if they stay up. If they stay up. I, I don't think you get either if you go down, because I think they get better options. But, yeah, I think one of them goes to Leeds. Marsh to Southampton. Rogers to Palace. Potter to Leicester. I think Pochettino becomes the manager of Chelsea. It wouldn't surprise me if Pochettino gets offered it in the next couple of days and takes it. Now, there has been talk that Pochettino is the favourite to get the Real job. That's a that's a big ask. <laughs> that's a big ask. But, you know, maybe he holds out for that. Maybe he's on a promise, in which case, then Enrique is probably the one that makes the most sense for Chelsea. I don't think Nagelsmann should take either job. Spurs do the club without a manager, and I think they're the ones that Nagelsmann should go to. I think they're the... I think they're the fit for him. Right, I've gone long. We'll do the gossip and we'll be done for today. A uh, couple of days worth to get through. So we'll just start with Saturdays. Right, uh, Chelsea has emerged as major contenders to sign Victor Osman. Uh Well, that'll all depend now on who the manager is, won't it? Chelsea are set to make a bid for Alejandro Balde of Barcelona to replace Ben Chilwell. What, is Ben Chilwell leaving? They've already got Cucurella. They don't need a left back. Bayern Munich are interested in signing Kai Havertz. That could be interesting. That could be very interesting. Chelsea are expecting a bid from Real Madrid for Rhys James. Okay. Paris Saint-Germain have told Lionel Messi they will pay whatever it takes to keep him. That's probably not the best way to run a football club. Arsenal are keen on Aurelian Chouameni. Um, If he becomes available, Liverpool will be all over him. Believe that. Arsenal are considering a bid for Rafinha. I mean, does he get in the team? He's better than Martinelli, but he prefers to play on the right where you've got Saka. So I, I, I... don't think that's really a clever move. Um, Jurgen Klopp says the club have been busy and are ready to spend big in the summer transfer market. Luke Shaw has agreed a new four-year deal at Man United. Talked about that Friday. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang wants to return to Barcelona, but the Blues do not want to sell him. Well, they clearly do want to sell him because he doesn't get a game. Roma are considering a move for David De Gea. Yeah, Mourinho always liked him, so it wouldn't be a surprise. Daniel Levy has no intention of selling to the two Manchester clubs again and still regrets selling Kyle Walker to Man City. Okay. Eric Ten Hag will decide on the futures of Scott McTominay and Victor Lindelof in the summer. The Swedish defender is a target for Inter Milan and Atletico Madrid. That's according to the spoof with the catchphrase, so who knows. Uh, Jeff Schlupp and Jordan Ayew have signed new deals at Palace. As squad players, fine, but they shouldn't be starting next season. Palace need to 
replace the two of them as starters. They're just not quite where you want them to be. But good squad players to have. Man City and Real Madrid have made Josco Gvardiol their top centre-back target. Liverpool and Man City are working on deals to sign Mason Mount. I didn't know Man City were interested. That seems to be a new wrinkle, a new development. Uh, it's Fraser Fletcher, who's a spoofer, so wouldn't pay too much attention. Leicester want Harry Maguire on loan for Man City. Sorry, Man United. Um, Tottenham chairman Daniel Levy has told Maurizio Pochettino he does not want him to return to the club. Okay. That's probably a good thing. I don't think managers should go back like that. Not not this soon, anyway. Um, Lionel Messi will not take a pay cut to stay at PSG, nor should he. Messi's options, should he choose to leave, include an offer from Saudi Arabia, where he'd be paid a ridiculous amount of money, and a return to Barcelona, where I'm assuming he would go back and play for whatever they can afford. Chelsea faced the reduction, faced the prospect of having to sell players, sorry, having to pay players millions to leave the club as they look to reduce the wage bill. I've been saying this. They are going to have to pay players off because nobody is giving Lukaku this, the type of contract he's on there. Nobody. Kim Min Jae is open to move for, to Liverpool. Ah, nonsense. Manchester United are monitoring the situation with Joe Felix. Okay. United are admirers of Diogo Costa and David Rea. However, neither would want to move the club if David... Sorry. They're, I'll start this again. United are admirers of Diogo Costa and David Rea, but neither want to move to the club if David, Rea, if David De Gea stays. Right, grand. Uh, French forward Antonio Marci- Anthony Martial, I cannot speak, is among eight players United are looking to sell. Uh, he's not going to have a whole lot of value at this point. Aston Villa's hopes of signing Ohan Sanset from Atletico, Atletico Bilbao have been dealt a blow after he signed a new contract. They haven't been dealt a blow. They have been ended. He signed a nine-year contract. Nine years. He's not moving this summer. Tottenham and PSG have been offered the opportunity to sign Americ Laporte. He would be perfect for Spurs in the middle of the back three, not on the left, in the middle of the back three. You get someone like Incapier or Inacio from Sporting, put him on the left, Romero on the right, and him in the middle, that's a back three. Now, in a back four, him and Romero could be a good pairing. Real Madrid will not sell, sell Ferland Mendy for less than 60 million euro. Well, first of all, that's twice what he's worth. Arsenal, Man City and Newcastle are interested. Arsenal have a better left back. I suppose City need a left back, but Nathan Aki's been really good this season. And yeah, I could see him at Newcastle. Uh, Italian manager Carlo Ancelotti has confirmed... Brazil wants to appoint him as their coach, but he wants to stay at Real Madrid. I was under the assumption he'd already agreed to leave Real this summer. I could be wrong. Um, Man City will look to sign Ansu Fati following concerns by his father about lack of playing time. Do you really think he's getting more playing time at City with what they've got? Burnley manager Vincent Company wants the championship leaders to sign Dutch goalkeeper 
Bart Verbruggen from his old set under like that kid looks really special. Like really special. It's hard to judge young goalkeepers, but he does look really special. Uh Rafa Benitez, Jesse Marsh, Ralph Hassenhutel, and Eddie Hooter are all contenders for the vacant Leicester job. I give it to Rafa to the end of the season, not beyond that. Graham Potter's sacking by Chelsea will spark huge interest at Leicester. Yeah, that's who I think they'll get. Uh, Marco Silva has emerged as a surprise contender to become Chelsea manager. He should run a mile from it. Chelsea are interested in Julian Nagelsmann. Again, he should run a mile. Pochettino is the one. Pochettino is the one. The spoofer says Ruben Amram. I hope he's smarter than that. I really do hope he's smarter than that. Nagelsmann is the early favourite to replace Potter, but Chelsea are in no rush to appoint a new manager before the end of the season. Well, then why do they sack him? Do they think they're going to win the Champions League? Uh, Liverpool have identified Conor Gallagher. I don't think they have. Newcastle United are firm favourites to sign James Madison. Chelsea are preparing to fend off a bid from Real Madrid for Reese James. Uh, Aston Villa is a more realistic destination for Mohamed Salisu, Salisu than Chelsea or Man United. I would have said that was obvious. Liverpool are interested in Jesper Lindstrom. I think he's really good, but he's not what Liverpool need. Chelsea have placed a £70 million price tag on Amadou Onana this summer. Um, if I, I, I honestly would love to have him at Liverpool. Genuinely, I think he's I think he's going to be an absolute monster. Premier League clubs are monitoring Lee Kang in, who is preparing to leave Mallorca this summer. He's also meant to be a bit of a prick, so I would avoid him personally. Uh, that's enough for me today, folks. Thanks as always. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. Podcast Network.